Today we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Now hear God's holy word from chapter 9. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents, having heads, and with them they do harm. But the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word and we ask you to illumine us today. Send us your Holy Spirit that we might see and hear clearly and might respond appropriately. Guide me and guide my words. Deliver us from anything that's not helpful, from any error, and and implant in us your word, which is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, something that happens to you when you grow up in a very sheltered and sectarian branch of the Christian church, something that happens to you is that you begin to believe that you and your congregation are the only faithful Christians left on the face of the earth. You and your 25 or 35 saints that you gather with on the Lord's Day, you think you are the, the, the only real Christians left. You alone are, are the true church. You feel very isolated and persecuted. And the rest of the people in the world who say they are Christians, they're really compromised and they're really heretical and, and very carnal. And so it's up to you to hold out and teach the truth because you are God's remaining gift to the world. And I certainly believed that at one point as a, as a young man, except for the fact that we didn't use music that we composed. In fact, all the music that we used in worship came from somewhere else. And all the books we read, the Christian books, weren't written by us. Those came from somewhere else too. Many of them were modern. We shopped at Christian bookstores that we didn't open and we didn't run. And none of that struck me as inconsistent. Until in the early 90s, I went to a a a non-denominational youth conference. I was there to hear a a favorite musician that was performing there. And I was convinced he was saved. He was a Christian. Everybody else, you know, they're just kind of flaky and they're not real Christians. uh, All these other carnal Christians around me are just, you know, heretics. But but he's right. He's right on because of the words of his songs. And I, I enjoyed him. It was the first time 
that I ever saw someone lift their hands in praise, in worship. It was the first time I ever saw that in person. And I had gotten to know the guy I was sitting next to. I said, what, what, what are you doing? And he said, I'm just putting my antennas up for the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> I had my hands jammed in my pockets and said, well, I'm But over the course of that conference, it struck me. I know where I was when when it hit me that all of these people in this conference room, they all read the Bible and they believe the Bible and they believe the Jesus of the Bible and they're serious about obeying the Jesus of the Bible. It, It was that moment it dawned on me that all of these young people, though they came from different places and different traditions and different churches, they were legitimate Christians. And my perspective on the size of the church went from about a postage stamp to the size of the solar system. And it was a few years later that it began to dawn on me that all of the Christians who had gone on to glory throughout history, all of them also constituted the church. They were the church triumphant who have received their reward. They're all resting in Christ, waiting for the resurrection. We'll join them one day. Right now, they're praising uh, Jesus before his throne, just as we joined in their praises today in worship. And that all of the thousands of generations yet to come, the Christians yet to be born, are are part of and will be part of the church as well. And so then my scope of the church went from uh, uh, the size of the solar system to beyond the limits of my imagination. It absolutely changed my view of the church and my view thus of God's plan in history. Today, this day on the church calendar is All Saints Day, where we remember and give thanks for all of the saints of all the ages, John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul, Athanasius and Irenaeus, Augustine and Chrysostom, John Huss and John Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin and Knox, as well as our grandmothers and our grandfathers, our pastors and our Sunday school teachers who never wrote a book and they'll never show up in a church history textbook, but they've all had a significant part to play in delivering to us the gospel, delivering to us the repository of the Christian faith. One of the popular passages to read today on All Saints Day comes from the book that we're studying. It comes from a couple chapters earlier, Revelation chapter 7. This is after the 144,000 Hebrews are sealed out of all of their tribes, after they're set aside and preserved from the judgment that is to come. Then we see in chapter 7, after these things I looked, And behold, a great number, which no one could number, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is the choir that we join with in their song today. That's the choir that we worship with. And the the scriptures also, uh, in many places, speak of the eternal assembly of the saints, which is incomprehensibly large. And often the Lord promises to to lavish his unfailing love to the thousands of generations who love him and keep his commandments. It's a much bigger, bigger vision of the church than I had a long time ago as a young man. So we worship today on this Lord's Day with all the saints not only assembled before the throne of God, but also all the saints around the world. As the sun came up this morning, 
over Japan and China and India and Australia. And as the sun moved over the earth, over Russia and the Middle East and Africa, the continent of Africa and Europe, uh, this morning, God's people rise in waves. They rose together to gather and present themselves before the throne of God. And now, and now as the sun has come over our heads, we have gotten up out of bed and we, we have gathered together. And then, and then once we're done, uh, people in the Midwest and the mountains and, and out on the, on the West Coast, they'll get up and they'll join the worship service that started when the sun rose on the other side of the earth. So that, so that from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, all day on the Lord's day, Christians are rising up and worshiping and joining in this, this eternal song that keeps going. And then, and then they leave off and the next group picks up all day long. In the same way historically, it's, it's that same way in historically, a song that was begun and worship that began and a table that was spread back at Pentecost now continues throughout the generation so that our grandparents left off and we pick up and our parents left off and, and we carry it forward. And then, and then this is our time to sing. And this is our part of the cantata. This is our part of the great choral work of history that we join in. And now we sing and then we'll leave off and our children will pick up the song after us. That's, that's the vision and that's the perspective on the church that this day gives us. All Saints Day reminds us that we're part of a great institution, bigger than any of us could comprehend. And that's far older than any of us are and will stretch far into the future long after we're gone. And it's made up of people from all over the world, from all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. And we give thanks for all of it and we rejoice with all of them. But do not ever think for a second that the church is a puny, bedraggled handful of vagabonds just hiding out and waiting for the end of the world. In the description of the sixth trumpet that we're reading this morning, the church is the end of the world. The, the church not only brings judgment on the old world, but the church is the end in the sense that it's the purpose or the telos or the direction of the world. It is the consummation of mankind. The church holds the keys to the kingdom and rides into battle swinging a two-edged sword. The church is the new humanity. The church is the new city and the church is the future. If you want to know what the world is going to look like in the future, you ought to be able to look at the church. The, the, the church is the model of humanity. Well, before we study and we get into this uh, in the sixth trumpet, let's remember where we are and what we're studying in this book in Revelation. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus and the, and the uncovering of the plan for his vindication on earth. So the people who crucified him, the people who rejected him at, as king, apostate Israel, the people who said, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him, crucify him. They are judged for their covenant breaking, just as Jesus said they would be. And John is invited up into heaven to get a vision of how these events, uh, how these events, which are shortly to take place, how they unfold, how they play out from heaven's perspective. And all of this is communicated in the language of symbol. Uh, Jesus took and signified these things to John. This is all in sign. So we have to take the signs that we read and interpret them in the light of the way that the Bible uses those symbols. So what's going on in this section? Jesus has taken up the book that contains the judgments against the world of the old covenant. 
He has broken the seven seals of the book, which are previews of the wrath to come. And now that the book is open, the trumpets uh, of the angels herald out the contents of the book, warnings to the people of the land, warning to the people who've broken the covenant, warning to, to, to them to repent and to turn. And the results of these trumpet judgments are revelations of things that are already true. The land is covered by the blood of martyrs. The worship of the altar brings judgment and not blessing. The water that flows out of the temple is not sweet water, it's poison water. The, the, the doctrine that flows out of the temple is poison. It's wormwood. All the leaders are fallen stars. And as we saw last week in the fifth trumpet, the land is overrun with an army of demons. The dominion of demons on the land of Israel was evident in Jesus's ministry, and it got even worse between Pentecost and the destruction of the temple. Now in the sixth trumpet, we read about another army, but this one is a mounted cavalry that thunders forth the gospel. The trumpet, the sixth trumpet, unleashes the church on the land. Remember when we talked a couple of weeks ago about what all trumpets do before we started this trumpet section, one of the things that trumpets do is muster an army for attack. And in Israel, the same trumpets that were blown to muster the armies of Israel also called Israel to worship. So, so both things are happening here. We've got a worshiping uh, uh, army of priests, a cavalry of priests that are being mustered by this sixth trumpet. Now, I'm sure that some of you are scratching your heads because you remember what we read just a few minutes ago, and you think, well, that doesn't sound like a good army. This doesn't appear to be a good army on first blush. And the majority of commentators agree with that. They say this sixth trumpet group, this, this horde that comes out of the sixth trumpet, is either another army of demons, or maybe it's some outside army of conquerors. Maybe it was Rome, or maybe it was the Parthians who had this great cavalry who attacked, who attacked Jerusalem. But if you don't mind, let me make a case for why I believe that these are the good guys, and not only that, but why it matters. First, we're starting here with the study of the sixth trumpet, but the sixth trumpet starts in the middle of chapter 9, and it goes all the way to the middle of chapter 11. Uh, we don't get the seventh trumpet until the middle of chapter 11. So for the next couple of weeks, the events that we're reading and studying are all going to be sixth trumpet events. And uh, the, there are other events that take place in the sixth trumpet. In fact, there are three major scenes of the sixth trumpet. First, there is this cavalry that comes out. Then an angel descends from heaven and puts one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. That angel, I believe, is Christ, but I'll explain why next week. And he gives to John a book to consume, and then John is supposed to preach the contents of that book. So, so the second scene in the sixth trumpet is a prophetic, gospel-oriented preaching scene. And then the third scene in the sixth trumpet is the scene of the two witnesses who preach the gospel. So, so we've got three scenes, a cavalry, a book given to John to thunder out, and then the two witnesses who preach the gospel. All three events, I think, are, are talking about different aspects of the same thing, which is what happens when the gospel is preached on the land. It has a, a two-edged effect. Some are condemned, some are saved, and, and given new life. So it seems consistent then that the first picture of this cavalry is a good thing. 
along with the other two scenes in this, in this sixth trumpet. Uh, I don't think we have one bad thing, an army of de- another army of demons, and then two good things. You have three good things in the sixth trumpet, which are all woes to the land when the people don't repent, but they're all gospel-oriented things. And that's, that's, that's one reason. Um, if you notice that um, I read that the um, smoke and the brimstone comes out of the mouths of the horses in uh, 918, well, that's the very same thing that's said about the two witnesses over in 11.5. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. So there's a, there's a parallel between the work of the witnesses in the third panel and the work of the horses in the first panel. And by the way, I, I'm not getting too far ahead. We're, we're going to unpack all this and we'll do it quickly. But uh, the fire that comes out of the mouth of the witnesses is the word of God. And so it seems that the fire that comes out of the horse and the horseman is also the gospel, the word of God. Another reason I think this is a good cavalry is that they are unleashed and they are led by angels. In the previous trumpet, it was Satan that took the lid off the abyss and unleashed this army of demons. Satan led the the army of locusts. Um, But the, the angels now unleash this army on horses. In the previous trumpet, the sound of the wings of the locusts was like horses, but these are described as horses, not like horses. They are described as horses. We've already seen angels riding horses. Jesus rides a white horse in the book of Revelation. So it seems consistent with the themes of this book that the angelic army is a cavalry. And so when you see horsemen and you see horses, this is heaven's army. What does Elisha see when he's given an opportunity to peek into the heavenly realm as as he fears that the enemies of God are going to be victorious? Elisha sees what? Angelic horsemen and chariots around him, right? So I think when you're seeing horsemen and chariots, you're looking at heaven's army. You're looking at an angelic army. One more clue to these being the good guys is the way they're numbered. Verse 16 says, uh, there are myriads of myriads. Now, your, your Bible and my translation uh, have done the math for us. Uh, but it's literally, a myriad is 10,000. Um, and, and so the, uh, the, the literal words here, myriads, two myriads of myriads, um, two, uh, uh, 20,000 times 10,000, which is, which is 200 million. But that word myriads, this numerical language, is used throughout the Bible for the children or the armies of God. Rebecca, back in Genesis, Rebecca receives the benediction. Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of myriads, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Psalm 68 says the chariots of God are myriads, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. The Lord is amid his, his myriads of, 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 of thousands, his, and, and, and he sends them out from his holy place. Well, that's the very same picture we have here. These horsemen are commanded from the golden altar, which is before God. They're commanded from the holy place, which is exactly what Psalm 68 says. So throughout the scripture, saints and angels are called myriads, and they're numbered in the scriptures. God's people are measured. They're counted because they're God's own precious possessions. He knows everyone's name. Each one of them has a name and a place. The pagan nations and the, and the pagan armies are not numbered in the same way in scriptures. We get casualties, 600 Philistines, 300 Philistines. We get those counts. The locust army is numerous, but they're not counted. 
They're, they're many, but they're a faceless, nameless swarm. But God's people are counted. God's people are numbered. And because this is a numbered army, indicates to me that they're a precious possession and that they're uh, God's own army. Now, now, some objections to this. Again, I'm getting to why this matters, but let me, let me answer a few questions or some objections for why these are high, uh, um, why they, you know, some think that they're maybe demonic or, or um, not, uh, maybe they're a, a, an enemy army. One, one objection is that, well, these are hybrid creatures. They're horses, but also lions, and they have tails like serpents. Uh, and, and, and the assumption is well, hybrids are demonic. But remember, the cherubim who sing before the throne of God are also hybrids. They have a face of a man, an eagle, an ox, and a lion. So um, that's, not, that's not consistent. Well, well, what about the fact that they kill? Well, 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. And the gospel kills the old man and raises up the new man, which is what they're doing here. Well, well, they've got serpents for tails, and serpents are always associated with Satan. But Jesus also commanded us to be wise as serpents. Um, are, are lions good or bad in the Bible? Well, Jesus is the lion of Judah, and Satan's like a roaring lion. You, you have to look at how the picture is being used in its place. Sometimes a picture of something good in one place is used in a different way. You got to look at the context. Um, is leaven good or bad? Well, sometimes leaven is describing something good and sometimes it's bad. Look at the context. So here, these snake tails of these horses fulfill God's purposes. So why does it matter? Why are you in this room on a rainy Sunday morning hearing someone talk about uh, horses with lion's heads and snake tails and whether they're good or bad? Why does this matter at all? It's because of the narrative that's being told here and the picture that we're being given. We're reading about judgments on the city of Jerusalem and on the people holding on to the old covenant, which they've broken. And one significant judgment against them is this, is this image of the church, the church swelling in numbers, running over the land, warning Israel of the wrath to come. God's blessing has departed from Israel, and now he has let his altar fire in the church. A persecuted and a marginalized church, especially in the first century, might, might feel as if we're just this little collection of outsiders and we have no influence and we have no success and we're just about to die. But Jesus shows them in this picture that you are not that at all. You are a mighty, glorious, victorious cavalry. And your work is actually pretty effective. It may feel like you're not getting anywhere with the people back in Jerusalem. It may feel like the people down at the local synagogue are running you over. But actually, your bold preaching and your witness is effective even when it's being ignored. Response to this army, response from the majority is a doubling down on idolatry and murder and sorcery and theft and sexual immorality. That's what's going to happen. And that's how apostate Israel responded to the gospel. That may feel like defeat and that may feel like a big discouragement. So very disappointing. But the fact that the gospel is preached is a success and the church is right in line with God's purposes. So the message of this trumpet is keep it up and don't lose heart. Well, let's keep that in mind as we work through these eight verses, and we'll do so briskly. Verse 13. 
I heard the sixth angel, the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. This command comes from the golden altar. This is the heavenly version of the earthly focal point of worship, the altar. The altar is where you bring your offerings, your sacrifices. This is where you renew covenant with God. This is where God receives you back into fellowship. And now God's actions in history proceed from his altar. The altar is the place where sins are covered. It's the place where the defiled are made clean. It's the place where all the pollution and the corruption of the heart and and all the pollution and corruption of society are dealt with here at the altar. And this is where you're allowed uh, access to God on behalf of the sacrifice. And God has promised that when his people live in a way that please him, he deals with their enemies. So now it's here at the altar after the perfect sacrifice of Jesus has been offered. And now that our sins are covered and our pollutions have been dealt with, now it's from that altar that God thunders forth his mighty acts in the world. That's where he sends forth and commands his people to go have the victory and to go take on their enemies. How is the world changed? How is the world transformed? Everything in our society right now is telling us that the world is going to be changed by what happens on Tuesday. That's how the world is changed. The future of the world depends. It hangs in the balance on what happens on Tuesday. You can't stick your head out the door or turn on your computer without being reminded of this. Is it important? Well, yes, in context, it is important but it's not the most important thing in the cosmos. It's not the most important thing in history. Worship before the altar of God is the most important thing in the cosmos. Worship before the altar of God is the most important thing in history. What we do here today, people of God, is more important than anything that's going to happen on Tuesday. How many Christians are gonna march into the voting booth on Tuesday without having worshiped in seven months? Why do we believe that is more important than this? Where did we learn this? How did we get this? How did we get here? Because we really don't believe in the means that God has given us to change the world. And because God's people aren't gathering before his altar to sing psalms and to pray that he would change the world, because we're not doing that, the wicked are dominating our society and rising to power because evidently the church doesn't care enough. We've forgotten that worship changes the world. And I don't know about you, but as for me in my house, no matter what happens on Tuesday, we're going to get up on Wednesday morning, we're going to go to work, and we're going to go to school, I'm going to raise my children, I'm going to love my family, and I'm going to worship God the next Sunday. And I'm going to give him thanks no matter what, because this is more important, way, way more important. Because we come before God's altar, and it's from the altar that he thunders forth the commands to change history. The call from the altar releases the four angels who are waiting. They're in a holding pattern north of the Euphrates River. The Euphrates was a border on the north and on the east of Israel. It was the border of the promised land. And so if somebody's coming across the river, like the Assyrians did, like the Babylonians did, they're coming to take over. They're coming to conquer. And that means God has turned the land over to whoever's coming over that river. And this time, it's the church. He's delivering them to their conquerors, who is the church. Verse 15. 
So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month or year were released to kill a third of mankind. There is an extreme precision to the timing of this. The hour and the day and the month and the year. In Acts, the church is released on the day of Pentecost, exactly 50 days after the Passover, which was the date of the crucifixion. 50 days later, the church is released uh, and, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Passover itself recalls the exodus from Egypt after the, after the Hebrews were in Egypt 430 years precisely. Exodus 12.41 says that they came out of Egypt 430 years to the day that they went into Egypt. God does not approximate his plans in history. God, when are you going to do this? I don't know, I'll get around to it. Whenever. No, there is an exactness to when he does things. And that's what this reveals. That's also why calendars matter. It's why days and months and weeks and years and seasons and festival seasons, why this all matters. It matters how we mark time because time matters to God. And how we use time and how we mark our days matters to God. So there's a precision to the timing of this, and this, these angels are sent to kill a third of mankind. And you may say, oh, there it is again. There's this, there's this killing. This sounds really, really bad. It doesn't sound like a good thing. But think of what the gospel does. The gospel is an invitation to come die. Come on up here and die. Come here and die. Die to your old man. Die to your sinful ways. Mortify your flesh. Come be buried with Jesus in baptism and be resurrected to new life and, and have eternal life. You don't get the new life without dying. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about the aroma of the gospel. And he says, to the unbelieving, we are the aroma of death leading to death. To the believer, life leading to life. The unbelieving man who refuses the call of the gospel, the unbelieving man who refuses Christ is refusing him because it smells like death. He knows he's going to have to die. We say Jesus, he smells death. Yes, there are things he has to give up and take off and put away and crucify. And he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to die. He knows that the gospel kills. What he can't see is that it also makes you alive and gives you life. And we always have to keep that two-edged perspective. The gospel kills, but it gives life. Which is why we can sing the imprecatory psalms. That's why we can sing, happy is he who takes and dashes the little ones against the rock. Why? Because the rock is Christ. And I want to dash my little ones against the rock who is Christ. I want him to kill them and make them alive again. That's what we do in baptism. We're dashing him against the rock who is Christ. We can sing those psalms not out of vengeance or hatred or meanness, but because we want everyone to be killed by the sword of God's word and to be resurrected in Christ. So they kill a third, and that's a good thing. The prophet Zechariah talked about this very same thing, this very same event uh, back in Zechariah 13. Um, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says Yahweh of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones and it shall come to pass in all the land, says Yahweh, that two thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one third shall be left in. I will bring the one third through the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, Yahweh is my God. That's what's happening here is that the third that are killed are resurrected to new life. They're converted. That's, what, that's what's happening here. When God moves through history, everyone dies. Some and many are raised to new life in Jesus. Verse 16. 
Now the number of the army of the horsemen was like 200 million. It was 200 million, myriads of myriads. I heard the number of them. It's a number beyond which we can't even comprehend, just like the other myriads we talked about. The church militant is a vast cavalry. This is not the first time the people of God are compared to a cavalry. When Elijah dies, what does Elisha cry out? Do you remember this odd little phrase? My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. Elijah was the was the prophet. He was the captain of God's army against idolatry and idolaters. He was the, he was the horseman of, of God. And when Elisha dies, King Joash says the same thing about Elisha. He's the, he's the captain of God's chariots. He's the captain of God's army. Now in Revelation, we see another great prophetic military force bearing down on the land. Verse 17, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. They wear breastplates like the priest. They are an army of priests, an army of worshipers wearing the colors of the, of the flames of the altar and the color of the smoke that comes off the altar, yellow and red and blue. They're sent forth from the altar and they wear the uniform of the altar. And out of their mouth comes the flames of the altar. On Pentecost was given to the apostles flames, tongues of fire. And now those flaming tongues are issuing forth flame and smoke and brimstone. The fire is the preaching of the gospel. The smoke is the prayer of the saints. The brimstone is the warning of hell and judgment. They are coming with swords of iron, but they're coming with the preaching of the gospel and prayers and warnings. Their horses' heads look like lions because they're a regal army imitating the lion of Judah. They're not whispering, they're roaring. Verse 18, by these three plagues, the, the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. In the previous trumpet, remember the, the sting of the scorpions um, made men want to die and they couldn't find rest. They couldn't find death. Here, the cavalry gives the them, the, them, a third of them, the death that they're looking for. It gives them rest and that comes by the gospel. So the gospel is the antidote to the sting of the scorpions, which is the false doctrine of the temple, the false doctrine that never gives you rest, makes you want to die. It's that poison, bitter water of self-righteousness that flows out of the temple. Standards of men that you can never live up to. The belief that doing good things makes you a good person. You, you, you make yourself feel temporarily better by doing the thing that's expected of you, but, but it has no power to, re, uh, to relieve the guilt of the millions of ways that you come up short. So it traps you in this tyrannical system. Self-righteous religion traps you in this tyrannical system of guilt-mongering and, and there's no way out. That's the sting of the scorpion. The gospel cavalry gives the antidote. Die to yourself. Die to the religion of self-righteous work salvation and find rest for your souls. Verse 19, for their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads and with them they do harm. The church has this dual authority to preach and to make judgments. It has positive effects and it has negative effects. On the day of Pentecost, 13 souls are saved and, and I'm sorry, 3,000 people are saved and baptized. And then immediately after that, Ananias and Sapphira are dealt with in judgment. And Simon the sorcerer is dealt with in judgment. There's, there's a positive and a, and a negative aspect. Those who don't believe are struck 
by the, the condemnation of the serpents. Now, in response to this, apostate Israel doesn't repent. They double down. Verse uh, 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, and stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. If we're talking about apostate Israel, if we're talking about the first century environment, um, did they really have idols of, of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood? Well, well yeah, they had. Uh, they, they, they had the, uh, the, the temple. That was the temple. Um, where do you find gold and silver and brass and stone and wood? That's the temple. The temple is their idol. Jesus said the temple's coming down and he's going to rebuild it in three days. The resurrection of his own body is what he's talking about. And they lose their minds. They say, it took us 40 years to build that temple. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? They could never imagine it coming down. They swore by the temple. They swore by the gold of the temple. It was a good luck charm. As long as the temple was standing, everything was right in the world. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they chanted. Yeah, but who's enthroned in the temple at this point? Wormwood is in the center of the temple. The presence of God has left the temple. Jesus went and inspected it twice and found it full of leprosy. Jesus left the temple. The, the temple veil was torn, and now it's the center of idolatry. That's what they embrace for dear life rather than Jesus. And look what it leads to. Verse 21, last verse. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. False, idolatrous, demonic worship will inevitably lead to murder and sorcery and sexual immorality and theft because you become like what you worship. When a society is overwhelmed with these habits and when it's overwhelmed with these obsessions, it's evidence of a deep, dark spiritual bankruptcy. That was true of Israel in the first century and that's true of the society that we live in. Murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft. Looking at this list, it's like looking in a mirror. I mean, our pagan national religion loves the murder of the innocent. They really, really love abortion. When you see leftists upset about the Supreme Court or when they're crying about health care, they're crying about women's rights, it's all, it's all a dog whistle. It's all a, it's all a show. What they're talking about is abortion. That's what they're scared of losing because they love death. Don't take away their right to kill. You take away their right to kill and then you've got to be responsible with what you do with your body. You have to be uh, faithful Men who raise and take care of and provide for their children. You have to be mothers who, who nurture your children. You have to be committed parents. We don't want any of that because we worship ourselves and our pleasures. We're a people of death. We're a people of murder. What about sorcery? We don't have a problem with sorcery, do we? What are you talking about? Do we have a problem with sorcery? We believe in science, right? No. We have bureaucratic scientism and we have safetyism. Our society is consumed with superstitions, rituals, gestures, signals. It's all voodoo, which you think is going to keep you safe. You think it's going to save you. What are you counting on to save you? That's your God. That's your idol. Sexual immorality, we got a problem with that? That's our banner. That's who we are. That's in our DNA. And it's not like the church has any solid footing on this issue. It doesn't matter what data or study you consult. 
Less than 40% of evangelicals think fornication is a sin. Let me repeat that. Less than 40% of evangelicals think that, that fornication is a sin. Fewer than 20% of Christians are virgins on their wedding day. That's just who we are. We worship demons and idols, and we, we abound in sexual immorality. Thefts? We have anything to do with theft? Whether I, whether I steal your checkbook and steal money out of your bank account, or whether I break into your garage and steal tools out of your garage, or I support policies and vote for people who steal from you and limit your ability to work and devalue our currency, it's all theft. It's just one is way more decent than the others, right? It's all theft, murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft. And what's more alarming is that churches and professing Christians want us to believe that these things really aren't that big of a deal. Why are you making such a fuss about abortion and murder? Why are you making such a fuss? Why are you always talking about sexual immorality? You got a problem? It's not the only issue. I mean, being nice is way more important than your position on bloodshed and mutilating eight-year-olds who think they're a girl when they're born a boy. Being nice is way more important than those things. Superstition is safety. Murder is healthcare. Sexual immorality is love. Theft is called justice. And the church is carrying the water for leftists and for the state on all of these things when our calling in the world is to be the fire-breathing, smoke-spewing, brimstone-emitting cavalry that surges and floods the earth with our myriads and myriads roaring like lions, wise as serpents. An awesome, fearsome, formidable army that you can never stop and you can never resist. And the world is changed as it moves across the world. Some are converted, some are condemned. No one stays the same. We are to go to war against these things, not adopt them into our liturgy, not to adopt them into our confessions, not to, not to love them and embrace them, but to show them and reveal them and expose them as shameful and to repent of them. And we call our brothers and our sisters in the church to repentance. Because we're in communion with them, because we're part of the same body, we call them to repent of their murders and sorceries and sexual immoralities and their thefts. The sixth trumpet cavalry was the church unleashed on the land to preach the gospel. Between Pentecost and the destruction of the temple, this is what is happening. The church is being unleashed to preach the gospel. It, this, this, this vision would have emboldened the church in the face of persecution and rejection. And this fearsome cavalry is the image of the church that we hold forth to our children and to the world that we are not just a nerdy collection of do-gooders. That's, you know, we're not like little clean-cut Mormons who just nice and smile and, and do good. We're, we're, we're not a nursery full of weak, passive, frightened toddlers. Our job isn't here to be nice. This is not a Bible club. This is a great fire-breathing cavalry. Give this picture to your sons and make them true soldiers of the cross to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Teach this picture to your daughters and grow them up to be mighty daughters of Zion, crushing the head of the serpent with their millstones and their tent pegs. Put the Psalms in their guts and in their hearts and in their heads. Let them never forget that we are at war and blow the trumpet 
and rejoice and worship before the altar of God and rejoice on this All Saints Day that we are where we are and we have the Bible we have and we have the confessions and creeds that we profess because somebody in history thought Jesus was more important than their own life. Someone in history thought the gospel was more important than their own personal safety. Someone believed that the assembly of the church was more important and more powerful than all the thrones and legislatures and councils and seats of power in the world combined. We are grateful for them. Thank you, Lord, for their lives and their witness. Let us and our children follow in their train and join this mighty cavalry. Let us pray. Mighty and eternal God, we remember before you the saints and martyrs of every generation who trusted you in the face of terror and threat. Grant us that when facing persecution and trial in our own day, we may be steadfast in the faith. Make us a mighty cavalry, completely surrender to your command, and grant us victory in the power of the Spirit to the glory of your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen.